Now, um, we did read the text uh, a moment ago. We're in Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 through 25. And uh, this has been a text that's been on my heart uh, for the past few months. And so I thought I would bring you a message from this text. Um, So... Normally I would read first, but since we read it earlier, I'll just uh, begin with prayer and then we'll get, we'll get started. Uh, Lord God, we thank you for today. We thank you for this opportunity uh, to hear from your word. God, I pray that you would uh, help me, Lord, that you would strengthen me uh, as this message is delivered. Um, but moreover, I pray that you would prepare hearts, Lord, to receive uh, what it is you have for them today, Lord, and that you would be glorified. Father, we do uh, pray for the fathers out there who uh, are faithfully serving you, asking that you'd continue to strengthen their faith, guide and direct them. And we pray for those who are lacking in that area and ask that they would, um, that they would come to know you in, in an intimate way, Lord, and that you would uh, do an amazing work in their heart, their mind, and their life, Lord, uh, for your glory. Um, God, we uh, commit this time to you and ask that you would be exalted in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> so, have you ever thought about, uh, you know, as you were putting something together, maybe perhaps uh, putting together a bike for your kid or a bookcase or a cabinet or a bed frame, maybe you had a project at work that uh, there was multiple details uh, incorporated with it, and maybe it was something, a task that you'd never done before, um, and there was a lot that went with it, and you thought, well, how am I going to get this done, right? I'm not familiar with how to put this together. I'm not familiar with how to do this task, and, and in, in those moments, what would be most helpful are instructions, right? Uh, you need an outside source to show or to guide you how to put together this thing or how to uh, accomplish this task. And similarly, you may have wondered uh, how something was made. Uh, For example, ingredients that formulated a dish or a drink or a dessert or a marinade or something to that effect. And uh, what would be helpful uh, to know how those things were put together would be a label with a list of ingredients. And so as Christians, we do have an instruction manual, so to speak. We have a list of ingredients of how life is to be lived out, and in particular, the text that we're looking at today um, with regards to marriage. And, you know, we have a list of ingredients of what goes into that and what sustains it. And we could look around our country and see that there is a glaring issue when it comes to this concept of marriage, when it comes to this institution. Uh, perhaps most obviously, it's how it's being defined. Uh, No longer is it defined as a one-man, one-woman institution. Rather, uh, it could be a man and a man, a woman and a woman. It could be a non-binary human, whatever. Just as long as these people love each other and our culture and our world, they're saying, yeah, it's it's fine for them to come together in what they would call marriage. Further, marriage in and of itself is being diminished. Uh, There are movements out there that want to dismantle the family unit. They reject the idea of a model that says it's healthy and it's right for a man and woman in marriage to raise children and grow them up. In addition, many reject the thought that there are roles within a marriage, that um, God has specified and determined 
specific roles even from the beginning. And that the man is the head of the wife, that the, he's a leader of the family and a wife humbly comes under the leadership of her husband. And what we've seen is a departure from biblical standards to a belief that says we can make our own standards. And things have been turned upside down and it's created blurred lines on many levels. And sadly, these issues are not exclusive to the unbelieving world. These progressive postmodern ideologies have made their way and are deluding even believers. It's not just for the unbeliever, but we see it's crept into the church and individuals, uh, entire evangelical communities are adopting this mindset and they are bending to the culture. They're also telling statistics to see where the majority land when it comes to a view on marriage. That marriage rates right now are at an all-time low while divorce rates are tragically high. So you have marriage rate, all-time low, divorce rate, tragically high. And some may wonder why. Why are the marriage rates so low? And I would say on the one hand, people are intentionally putting marriage off now to later in life. And in my case, I wasn't intentionally putting it off, just as the Lord saw fit in His will, it came later. But people are intentionally putting it off now, not like it used to be. Um, there's also this mindset that it's like, why do we even have to get married, right? Isn't it just a piece of paper, just a certificate? And what they're doing is they're playing house. They're, they're doing things that are restricted to marriage in a context of people who are not married. So they think, why do we need it? And there are countless excuses uh, that we could list, but know that a twisted understanding of marriage and root causes for divorce ultimately are found in sin. Its main factor, its driving factor is, is sin. And now more than ever, it's urgent for people to run their thinking and their understanding of what marriage is through a biblical grid. We must line up our thinking to what God has said. And thankfully, he has much to say about it in Scripture. He's, his inspired word rightly defines marriage, it rightly explains marriage, and it puts a proper value on marriage, And when we come to the text of Scripture and we read about marriage, what we should do is come face-to-face with the sobering reality that it should not be taken lightly. And indeed, it's noteworthy that what we would find woven into the DNA of marriage is the gospel. Of course, we won't exhaustively look at marriage this morning, but what we're going to do is we're going to go back to the beginning. And before we do, I want to kind of catch us up to speed with where we're at in Genesis. A little background leading up to this portion of the book. What we see in Genesis 1 is God fashioning and creating things out of nothing. And he's doing so in, a, in an orderly fashion. Right? He makes the heavens and the earth and he creates the vegetation of the earth. And it's all done in an organized fashion. He creates the beast of the field, the birds of the air, the creatures of the sea, the shrubs, the trees, and they're all created after its own kind. And amazingly, God creates man distinct from all of this creation, and he creates man in his image. In Genesis 2, Moses puts the zoom lens on a camera, so to speak, and he comes in for a close-up look. As he's retelling the creation account, he actually focuses in and he brings an emphasis to the sixth day of creation. That's his main point of emphasis. So what we would see is that vegetation had not yet sprang up. God had not 
brought uh, rain to fall on the earth yet. He has created man from dust. He has breathed life into his nostrils, and man has become a living being. And the Lord took him from this place, and he planted him in the Garden of Eden to cultivate it, to tend it. And then in Genesis 2, 16 and 17, God gave Adam a command, one prohibition. He says, from any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in that day you eat of it, you will surely die. And then we land here, verses 18 through 25. And what I don't want us to miss from all of this is that God is the designer and the author of creation, yes, but he's also the author and designer of the establishment, the institution of marriage. He is the provider of it, and he has a purpose in it. And what we're going to observe today are three principles that provide proper perspective on the institution of marriage from which God has designed. Three principles that provide a proper perspective on the institution of marriage from which God has designed. The first one, found in 18 through 20, is man had a need for companionship. Which again, the text says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good for man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. Out of the ground the Lord formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the cattle and to all the birds of the sky and to every beast of the field. For Adam there was not found a helper suitable for him. And what's striking about this text and the first read is what we see is this is the first time that God has said something is not good, right? As we read, as you would read through Genesis 1, you'd see that God said, let there be light, and there was light, and God saw it, and he said it was good. Verse 10 of Genesis 1, God called the dry land, and he gathered up water, and he called the seas, and God said it was good. Verse 12, he, uh, the earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed after their own kind, trees bearing fruit with seed in them after their own kind, and God saw it and he said it was good. Verse 17, God placed them, the, the sun and the moon, in the expanses of heaven to give light to the earth and to govern day and night and to separate light and darkness, and God saw it he said it was good. Verse 21, God created the sea monsters and every living creature that moves with which water swarmed, and, and all of these were created after their own kind. The, the winged birds were created after their own kind. God saw it. He said it was good. Verse 20, 25, God made the beasts of the earth after their own kind, the cattle after their own kind, everything that creeps on the ground after its own kind. God saw it. He said it was good. And even notice in verse 27, God created man in his own image. The image of God, he created him. Male and fem, female, he created them. Verse 31, God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. So it, was, it wasn't until all of creation was made that he said it was very good. But we see this pattern. He's saying he created this. He saw it. It was good. He created it. He saw it. It was good. It was good. Now we see here it's not good for man to be alone. What sounds like a negative is actually something beautiful. And God makes this statement that it's not good for man to be alone, yet he doesn't just leave Adam there to figure out this dilemma, right? He doesn't just say, I'm going to leave this up to you, Adam. Figure it out. It's not good for you to be alone. But what he says is, God will bring 
him a helper suitable for him. And what do I mean by Adam had a need? What, what's meant by that? Um, we know that it doesn't mean that being unmarried is not good. Obviously, Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 addresses uh, to the unmarried and to the widows. He says it's good. He says, may you remain as I am, unmarried. You know, I think about this even in my own life that there was many years where I prayed for a wife and, and I thought, God, this is a good thing. Like, why have you not brought me a wife yet? Like, I, I desire a good thing, right? But I remember when my pastor, this is about six years ago, he was preaching a ser- sermon out of Malachi and he was preaching on idolatry. And he asked the congregation to think of idols that they have in their life. And I remember thinking to myself, well, I don't really have much that I idolize. Like, I'm a pretty simple guy, right? And then he made a statement about how some people may idolize their spouses or they might idolize a family. And I thought, wow, I idolize marriage. And it was very convicting. And then he asked the question, is Jesus... Is he satisfying to you? Is he the most satisfying thing that you have in your life? The ultimate source of satisfaction. And I remember thinking to myself, yeah, I was having a conversation with myself while the pastor was preaching. But I remember thinking to myself, if I honestly answer that question right now, I would have to say no. Like Jesus isn't the ultimate source of satisfaction in my life because I have gone through these stages of depression and emotion, right? Like, God, why haven't you brought me this wife? Well, what I was demonstrating was Christ wasn't the most satisfying thing in my life. And we got to realize that our most greatest need is the Lord. It is Christ. So even though Adam had a need, which, think about this for a second, in the, in the, term, in the realm of theological implications, there was a need here, but it wasn't in the sense like... Um, you know, it wasn't good because he didn't have that partner. But I thought um, uh, Whitmer was wise to say this in his book, The Shepherd Leader at Home. He said, this dynamic has its root in the very nature of the Godhead. Our triune God exists in perfect interpersonal relationship of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Adam's need was for someone like him, someone with whom he could relate. It reflects the mysterious relationship dynamic within the Trinity itself. And God knew Adam's need, and he met it. So Adam's need was for someone he could relate to. Um, Being created in the image of God, uh, there's an aspect that says, by nature, we are relational beings. And Adam, he was missing that. And what God was doing, or what God was going to do, was he wasn't going to just provide a friend for Adam. He wasn't going to provide a brother or sister in the church for Adam. He, he was going to provide for him a complimentary companion. And it was going to be someone who would not just make him complete in some sense, but that it was going to make creation complete. Remember, it wasn't until God created man and woman after all he had created in that sixth day, and then he said it was very good. So we see that by God bringing Eve to Adam, that he was in a sense completing creation. It was going to be someone who necessarily was uh, going to be there for Adam. And the Hebrew term 
use for helper, because that's what it says, I'm going to make, her, make him a helper suitable for him. It refers to someone who assists or supports. So a helper can refer broadly to one who renders aid. And it, it in some cases, can imply a, a subordination of another, but it, it doesn't necessarily mean that this person was going to be inferior to them. But let's think about this for a second practically. What does the helper relationship look like? In Adam's context, she would help him in filling of the earth and tending it, right? This was a need (laughs) to fill the earth. In our context, it might be that she would be a source of encouragement or perhaps, you know, taking something off of her spouse's plate so that he could uh, focus on an important task. When it comes to home life, she helps maintain the home and take care of kids. Maybe, perhaps, she could be there to come alongside her husband and him come alongside her in the realm of ministry. Another practical aspect of the helper relationship is that the husband's strengths counterbalance the wife's weaknesses and vice versa. The woman's strengths counterbalance the man's weaknesses. God knew this would be a need. And he knew it was not good for man to be alone, so he wanted to provide a helper that was suitable. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians eleven nine, For indeed, man was not created for the woman's sake, but woman for the man's sake. And it's interesting that as the narrative goes on in Genesis 2, verses 19 through 20, in an initial reading of that text, it might seem like it's almost parenthetical. Because if you took verses 19 through 20 out of there, It would read, Then the Lord God said, It's not good for man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. And then verse 21, So the Lord caused Adam to go into a deep sleep, and he took from his rib. On and on it goes. So how should we understand verses 19 through 20? It said, The naming of the animals. I believe we gain insight to a couple of things. First, we get a glimpse of Adam's exercising of his stewardship. He's naming the animals. He's showing dominion and authority over them. And he's following through with what Yahweh had placed him in the garden to do. Second, it seems that the Lord used it as a means of the process. There was kind of a waiting period, even though it was a short waiting period. There was a waiting period as he's naming these animals. He's running through the list And then he looks around. He's surrounded by all these creatures. He gets to the end, and there's still not one that's like him. Imagine, he's he's looking around. He's seeing all of what Yahweh created, and there's none like him. He needed someone who he could relate to, someone to identify with. In Adam, he couldn't manufacture a companion on his own. But what could he do? He could hang on to what God said. Because God said, he would supply this helper for Adam. And I think as Christians, this is what we ought to do. We ought to cling to, remain anchored in the truths of what God has said. Even when we're in a waiting period, when we need to make decisions, when there's challenges that come our way, when we're challenged by the culture, what we do is we hang on to what God says. We hold fast to His Word. Which brings me to our second principle So the first point, the first principle was we observe man had a need for companionship. In a sense, Adam was somewhat incomplete, but yet 
all of creation was incomplete. It wasn't good for man to be alone. And what do we see? We see he could be holding fast to this truth, what God had said. And then the second principle, God had provided a companion. Verses 21 and 23. A marriage where God is accepted as the architect brings him glory. We know he has set the parameters for what's to take place in marriage, but he's also set the parameters for what marriage is to be, what it, what it should look like. He, he sovereignly brings people together in the marriage context. It's God's idea, it's not man's. See, man had a need, the Lord, who is the author of marriage, he provides. And how does he provide for Adam? Well, we see he basically puts them in a divine, he gives them a divine anesthesia. <laughs> he puts them under, he puts them to sleep, and then does divine surgery. He forms woman from the side of man. And the Lord could have made Eve the same way he created Adam from the dust, but he chooses a different way. And it's interesting because the Hebrew word for side there, or as some of the English translations render it rib, it's most often used in an architectural context. So in Exodus, for example, 25, 27-7, 38-7, they're all references to the side of structures. It's like the Ark of the Covenant, the tabernacle, the altar, the temple. However, in Genesis 2.21, this is the only occurrence that it refers to human flesh. And so Moses may be using some wordplay here, right? Uh, the word that's generally used for architecture, and then what we see in verse 22, that he fashioned the woman. In the Hebrew, it means to build Almost to say God strategically, architecturally fashioned this marriage. He built this marriage, right? So let that sink in for a second. He built this marriage. Is there anything significant about Eve being made from Adam's side rather than the dust? Well, it doesn't explicitly say, it doesn't tell us directly, but perhaps what we may gather from this text and the rest of Scripture that this one act of creation, in this one act of creation, God is establishing a pattern that is to be seen and made through every God-honoring marriage. Eve coming from Adam's side reflects a closeness. It reflects a nearness. It represents a unity and equality in the created order. And Matthew Henry commented on this. He said, The woman was made of a rib, out of the side of Adam. Not made out of the head to rule over him, nor out of his feet to be trampled on by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, and near his heart to be beloved. And what comes to my mind as well when I think about this is that, as I kind of mentioned earlier about the helper, that they would come alongside one another. I think that's a beautiful word picture of that, of how a man and a woman could faithfully serve one another, that, that it's by coming alongside each other uh, that make this work, and, and God provides this. And as the narrative continues, we read a resounding exclamation from Adam. As he says, This one, alas, is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. And Hebrew scholars have noted that this is not a casual statement. 
but this is a great exclamation. And you men who are married in here, I'm sure if you could imagine back for a moment when you first took a look at your newly pronounced wife after saying you may kiss the bride, I'm sure it was an exciting event. I think about some time for those of us who have been waiting a long time for marriage that we could say, alas, here she is, (laughs) bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She is now my wife. And that's what we see in this exclamation from Adam. And wives, I'm sure you can resonate with that as well. When you finally looked upon your husband as you were married, rejoicing, and what a, what a great day it is, what a great day it was. And even for the unmarried, you can imagine, Lord, Lord willing for yourself, or just even in general, we can imagine how great that would be. Adam's situation indeed was unique. You see, he called her woman, he gave her a name of woman, which represented an affiliation. It was a likeness to himself. In the Hebrew, you have ish and isha, because from the man came the woman. There was a special relationship that was formed. And in a short time, it was declared it's not good for man to be alone. God then forms the woman from the man's side. He presents woman to the man, establishing a unified, unique relationship, a relationship that the Lord provided. So again, we saw man had a need for companionship. And then we saw God had provided that companionship. The Lord strategically formed and fashioned woman from Adam's side, presented to her, presented him to her. And then thirdly, after this deliberate bringing together, God has a purpose for companionship. God has a purpose for companionship. Verse 24, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and join to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his woman were both naked and were not ashamed. Certainly one purposeful aspect, as recorded prior, is that this union, this companionship, serves to fulfill the mandate to be fruitful and multiply, going back to Genesis 1, 26 and 28 which obviously what we'd argue is in the context of a committed covenantal relationship, right? And God receives glory when his image bearers are going forth into the world. And God ultimately receives glory because he is the one who builds the house. But I want you to notice that the one flesh language, that one flesh bond language that Moses is speaking of here, it speaks of a meshing together of two people in life. It, it, it's more than just the sexual relationship, although, indeed, that is a great benefit of the marriage. But these two becoming close, is, it's a close connection that is as close ties as a bloodline. A sharing of life together, even in the most difficult times and the most refreshing times. And if we were going to, to, to really think about that, that a lifelong committed relationship be, with another person... It's going to have to have a two lives meshing together as one for it to work. Moses, he also addresses that a leaving needs to take place. They shall leave their father and their mother. And this does not mean that you no longer respect your parents. This does not mean um, that at times you don't seek, seek counsel from your parents, especially if they're godly. But what it does mean is that a new household is established. 
Thus, the opinions that matter most come from your spouse. And what's interesting is that neither Adam nor Eve had a mother and father at this time. So why does Moses bring that up? Well, what I would argue is that he's looking toward future relationships. He has the future married couples in view uh, when he states this. And so what we see is there's a, a dividing and then a sticking together to form a strong bond. Another aspect of the, the purpose of companionship is that the joining together between two people is lifelong. It, it, it's a lifelong kind of joining. And one commentator says, joined here carries the sense of a permanent and unbreakable union so that divorce was not even considered. One flesh speaks of a complete unity of the parts that make up the whole. So there's a permanent, permanent union, a permanent unity. Mark 10, 2 through 9, says some Pharisees that came up to Jesus testing him and began to question him whether it was lawful for a man to divorce a woman. And he answered and said to them, what did Moses command you? And they said, well, Moses permitted man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. And Jesus says, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote that command to you. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, man shall leave his father and his mother, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two flesh, but one. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. God's word pronounces a permanency with it. The, the vows declared the time of the wedding vows represent a permanency. Until death do you part. Obviously in the new heavens and new earth uh, there won't be a marriage between two people but there will be a marriage between Christ and his bride. There will be uh, the great wedding feast of the Lamb. The bridegroom will come to Take his bride, and what a glorious day it will be. Amen? So God's purpose for companionship is that it serves to fulfill the mandate to have dominion over the earth, to fill it up. It, uh, in it, there's a new household that's formed. There's a joining together for life, a lifelong joining. And further, it's a picture of the union between Christ and the church. And I thought John Piper said it well. He said, the divine reality hidden in the metaphor of marriage is that God ordained a permanent union between his son and the church. Human marriage is the earthly image of this divine plan. God willed for Christ and the church to become one flesh, or one body, sorry. Genesis 2.28, 1 Corinthians 12.13. So he willed for marriage to reflect this pattern that the husband and wife would become one flesh. And then in Ephesians 5, Paul speaks of a profound mystery, a mystery that represents an illustration of Christ and his church. He says, verse 22, Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church. He himself being the Savior of the body, for as the church is subject to Christ, so also wives ought to be to their husbands and everything. But it doesn't stop there. Moreover, the husband is to love his wife as Christ loved 
the church. So what an illustration this is of Christ and the church. It can also be said that marriage is a gospel institution. As Christians, we are a forgiven people, so we must be a forgiving people. And obviously this, this would be something that we all would appeal to no matter what the relationship is, right? That we'd be forgiving people. And think about how many times you've had to forgive somebody. How many times they've had to forgive you. But also consider the offense that we've had towards Christ. How has He responded? How does He respond? He does so with patient mercy and grace. It's sad to see that when we experience an offense from somebody, oftentimes it's so minor. right? To us it's catastrophic. But in the grand scheme, it's so minor. But yet people will have such deep-seated anger and resentment, and they hold on to that. And of course, some of us have experienced some serious, horrific things. So I'm not discounting that. But as forgiven people, we need to remember, as we've been forgiven much, we need to forgive much. You put two sinful people in close quarters, (laughs) especially living together day by day, night by night, Oh, how we need to be reminded of the gospel. It's interesting that it says here in our text that Adam and Eve, they were naked and unashamed. See, up until this point, they had only known good. They, they didn't know wrongdoing. They, they were shameless and innocent. But then with a the blink of an eye, we get to Genesis 3. And what we encounter is a devastating and tragic strike to humanity, the fall occurs. You want to know why people struggle in relationships? Genesis 3 explains it. Think about how much sin has affected us. It it literally destroys relationship. It shipwrecks marriages. And at times there's almost a war between two people. And literally there are wars between people going on in our world. Relationships are difficult. Marriages are hard. It takes work. It takes a lot of work, even for believers. God has a sanctifying purpose in companionship. Thus, it's imperative that we approach it through the lens of the gospel. When you have two, when you have prideful, selfish sinners living amongst each other, there's going to be problems. And so, there's hope, though, right? Genesis 3, we see the fall, we see the problem, but Genesis 3.15 It promises a Savior. We see hope. To survive a marriage in a fallen world, to maintain fruitful, healthy relationships, it takes gospel-saturated, scripture-saturated perspective. It takes zeroing in on what God has said. It takes repenting of sin and striving to walk with Him. And what God does, He does purposefully. So to circle back around what I brought up in the beginning, our world has totally turned upside down. It's coming in agreement with things that are totally contrary to what God has said. It wants us to believe these things, but what we've read today, specifically in the realm of marriage, we see our culture especially, is redefining marriage, it's diminishing marriage, it's turning what God has appointed on its head so what must we do? We must look to His inspired Word 
as he rightly defines it, he rightly explains it, and he rightly places the proper value on it. So you want to know what God has to say about anything, you come to his word. You need the instruction manual, come to his word. You want to know the ingredients, come to his word. So I want to leave you with a few questions. Have you acknowledged your need for God? So I want to encourage you to anchor your satisfaction in the Lord. He's more than enough. You might be single. Recognize He's more than enough. You're married. Recognize Christ is enough. Those who are married, have you uh, been reminded of the fact that God has given you a gift? Or do you complain and grumble about your companion? When's the last time you were thankful for what God has provided question for all of us is, have we thanked God lately for His faithful provision? Especially us who are in Christ, for the salvation He's given. But think about how much He cares for you, that He would provide daily sustenance. He would provide a home, a healthy church to grow in. Most importantly, He provided Christ Himself. And as for God sovereignly providing Eve to Adam, He sovereignly provides a myriad of things for us. Are you mindful of His purposeful ways in the midst of a wavering, chaotic, godless society? Are you holding fast to His truth? Or are you allowing for yourself to be swayed? Don't bend to it, but bend your knee to Him. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You, Lord. For your love and your grace, Father, we thank you that even though we are sinful creatures, that you've provided a way of hope, that in the midst of challenging relationships, you've given us a means to, to be able to look to, to manage it well, to be fruitful in it, to have healthy interactions, God. We thank you that you've provided an institution of marriage. Uh, that's distinct from any relationship we have in this world. We're grateful, Lord, for your love toward us. We're grateful for all the illustrations that come out of what marriage is. Even for those who are not married, we could see your hand at work. We could see what a beautiful picture it is of a gospel presentation. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us not to grow weary in doing well, but in due season we would uh, reap the harvest, Lord, and God, I pray that you would be with this congregation. Continue to grow them, not just in number, Lord, but grow them spiritually. That they could be a people that the community would look at and say, they know Christ and they serve Him well. God, we thank You for this time that we get to spend worshiping on the Lord's Day. In Jesus' name, amen.